Welcome everyone to Future Imagined, a foresight podcast dedicated to future thinking powered by MGS Insights. I'm Joe Lepore. I lead Foresight for North America as part of Mars Wrigley's Global Foresight team. In our second season of the show, we've been deep diving into topics of the future that are the most influential for this decade. And if there's one question that I get asked often when it comes to what's going to be driving human behavior through to 2030, it's a question around our passionate lean into helping local communities, particularly driven out of 2020. This shift is really self-evident. I think that we've all seen and experienced it ourselves. We have reconnected with our communities. In a lot of cases, we've been more generous, more giving. We've ditched the coffee at home to go and support our local cafes. We've been encouraged to buy locally and sustainably. In a lot of cases, we've looked closer to home to be aware of what issues are impacting our fellow citizens or our local communities. What's very subtle about this change is that it's been so prominent in 2020, but it's actually been building over the last decade or so. If we look beyond individual needs and behaviors, we see bigger themes like deglobalization or reverse globalization, particularly with regard to topics like trade, a growth of a focus of local manufacturing, shortening or simplifying our supply chains, and in a lot of cases, nationalism. Despite what 2020 showed us, we are becoming more global, more cross-culturally competitive, more wasteful despite ongoing efforts, more urban despite everyone's desire to move to the country. We're challenged with scarcity of resources. We're less physically connected in some cases, more communal in other cases, definitely coming together to support important causes. But in other cases, we are more divided. This topic is very big and very complex, and today we're going to take it right back to the original question that I often get asked, and specifically to the impact of all of this on human beings, and what companies and brands can action at the local level to make a global impact. To help us get a view into the future of this topic, we have an absolutely stellar panel who will help us to explore this with unique perspectives. My name is Alan Reed. I'm the executive director of the Chicagoland Food and Beverage Network, of which Mars Wrigley is a member. I'm also the executive director of our sister organization, Bigger Table, focused on working with the food and beverage industry to give back to the communities where we all do business. My name is Rose Hertzegg, and I'm the Chief Strategy Officer of WPPAUNZ, that's Australia and New Zealand. I live in Sydney, Australia, and I work right across the country and New Zealand, helping all of our 64 businesses with strategy. I sold my business actually to WPP several years ago, and in that vein, I played the life of a futurist. My role is to really connect with what people want. My name is Quinn Childs. I am the research director at the Institute for the Future in our Food Futures Lab. I am a futurist. I spend most of my time looking at possibilities of what might happen, how the world might change in critical ways, specifically regarding food. We look all up and down the food value chains, and as I'm sure Rose can attest, having a sort of cross-pollination between different domains can be very useful at understanding what is changing in the future. I'm Lauren Kemp. I am a consumer insights manager at a brand you've probably heard of, McDonald's here in Chicago. I work solely on our 14,000 restaurants here in the United States and bringing consumer insights to life for the digital consumer. 
some of these things that are important to people that are translating into the things that they buy or that they lean into. Obviously, McDonald's would have a wealth of knowledge in this space. And what I'm particularly interested in is how this COVID issue, which is a very global issue that we've all felt, has made us lean into what's closer to home and what's sort of local and hyper-local in a lot of ways. I think there's a lot of things going on within that. I think primarily we are social animals on this planet. We learn and experience things through others and with others. And that's really important. It's how we are who we are (laughs) as a species on this planet today. And I think what's really interesting is that McDonald's is a global brand. We operate in hundreds of countries around the world, but each one of our restaurants that you go into is owned by a person in that community. A lot of our owner operators do a lot of work to support that space and that feeling. One of the prime examples was due to COVID last year, literally a year ago, we handed out 10 million thank you meals in the Happy Meal box to first responders, police officers, anybody helping with the COVID crisis when we were first thrown into this pandemic. And that idea actually stemmed from a single owner operator (laughs) and a single space. What I really love about that is that you're tapping into the knowledge and the expertise from the local franchisees and then being able to scale that up. Rose, I'd love to hand it over to you on this question as well, because as a social forecaster and obviously someone living in Australia, and Australia has been very much sort of locally proud and leaning into local communities for a long time. How are you seeing this sort of come to life and what people are wanting and needing? What I love, Joe, what I've seen in every one of the local communities is the pride that Aussies feel when they go and support their local communities, whether it be their local butcher, the cafe, the little corner store. They're going out of their way to purchase goods and services, even though they don't necessarily need them. And it's this idea that, you know what, we could cook at home, but you know what, we're going to go out tonight to have dinner at the local Indian, Chinese, Italian restaurant. This incredible groundswell of support. It's such a lovely, lovely sentiment in this country. And I'm loving seeing it. There's a real sense that if you do not pump some money into your local economy and your local shop, that shop won't survive. And so if you look at the power of the local dollar and what it can do, it can buoy a community and keep it on its feet. And I think I've never been more proud of being an Australian than right now. Amazing, Rose. I feel exactly the same way, despite the fact that I am leaving Australia. I'm still incredibly proud of everything that I've seen. So I'd love to expand on that sort of point around the pride that we all feel in the produce that we make or the local restaurants and and suppliers that we have. Quinn, I'll hand it over to you. What role does national culture or national identity play in that sort of lean into buying local and being influenced to support local communities? A lot of times, We talk about eater identity, which I think sort of encompasses things like nationality and culture. We're seeing more and more things like political identity sort of informing what foods you eat and, you know, what your eater tribe is. So it's not just national identity, but that that plays a huge part in it. And you see more of that happening. You see it happening in new ways. You see new technologies and groups and organizations enabling more of that. But it's a strong force. Lauren, when we talk about food culture um, specifically, I'd love to know how you tap into that in McDonald's. Um, One of my favorite lines from the McDonald's company is person by person, one community at a time. So how do you balance that local community culture with this global um, organization that you're a part of? 
you know, it's a balancing act without a doubt. One of my favorite marketing promotions that we did before COVID was actually bringing the menu items that were popular in other countries to our global restaurant here in Chicago in the United States. And that was hugely successful. It actually spawned uh, an entire U.S. promotion then. Uh, yet, yet another example about how, you know, one restaurant doing one thing can kind of breed the idea and reach 14,000 of them. The power of technology that we now have to be able to harness ideas that can be, they used to just exist in a silo and stay in their silo. So it's the push-pull between technology making the world feel smaller, but then to your earlier point, as far as like the kind of backlash to that and increasing in nationalism, I mean, it's all a balancing act. And I think we're all trying to navigate it as best we can in a global pandemic. Keeping it on this train of, positivity, all of the positivity that we've seen coming out of the sentiment around buying local. And then I'm going to get into the sticky areas that are a little less positive in a second. But there have been a lot of really great positive signs coming out of this, obviously. And I think one of the most prominent ones in 2020 was around giving and particularly around donations. And I saw that in Google in 2020, a global report that searches for supporting small business doubled on 2019 and how to donate was searched twice as much as how to save money. And people were definitely looking to save money last year. So Alan, I'd love to hear how human kindness has come into this equation. Wow. So huge outpouring in Chicago, as as I know it has been around the world. Um, And as I said, we launched this initiative right as COVID was coming. And in fact, I thought we might have to pause But I had two of my collaborators step up and say, no, no, this is the moment we have to dig in. Creating products to help food banks, it's exactly what is needed right now. One piece that came shining through was just the incredible generosity of companies. They stepped up and they made sure that this absolutely got done. What we have discovered is if we can sort of stand in the middle and direct traffic and help people collaborate and help companies know how to give and how to do well, they will do it. Once you sort of unlock that kindness and sort of take away the barriers to doing great things, the collaborators and companies that we work with have absolutely picked up the ball and started to run with it. We were asking companies to donate ingredients or donate formulations or donate line time. And what they came back and told us was, we want to do this again because our employees loved it. It showed what kind of a company we are. It engaged everybody here. We were so excited that what we do is critical to helping others because sometimes you forget that. Rose, I would love to hand it over to you as well on this one, because when we talk about giving back from an organizational perspective, a lot of companies have their charity arm. I know that in Mars, we have the Mars Wrigley Foundation, and we've done a lot of great work during COVID-19. But how does this fit into the business profit equation? Purpose is one of those big words with a capital P, usually drives somebody like me a little nuts because purpose is action. And what I say to every one of our clients right across WPP is if you're going to do something for the love of God, just do it. Don't advertise it. Don't try to get PR out of it. Do it because it is the right thing to do. Now, here's the other truth. Doing something good and doing it well actually increases your sales dramatically. 
doing good is great for business. And more and more, what I'm saying to a lot of our clients is, you know what, just get out of the way. If you're going to donate, don't write the press release first. How about you just donate to the community, see what the knock-on effect is, see what it does to people, see how it helps them. And frankly, be quite private about it. Really giving is only really giving if nobody notices. You know, the measure of a person is if what they do in private is what they would do in public. I think the thing about COVID is it's taken away a lot of the pretense of giving or sustainability or some kind of program of giving back because bottom line, there's a way to be a person and there's a way to be an organization. And if you don't know what that is, then you're in deep strife. So again, I cannot stress enough. And I say this to our clients, you know, would you do it if nobody were watching? Mm. That's an interesting question. And they're like, oh, well, you know, we have to get PR value out of it. And I'm like, no, you don't. You just have to do the right thing because people find out. People can smell a lie literally immediately. So if you just do what's right, they will get it. And then there will be a groundswell of support for your company or your brand. One other point that I wanted to touch on was around um, leading from that point around credibility is trust. So in 2021, we've seen the Edelman Trust Barometer highlight that businesses are the most trusted entity, more so the NGOs and governments, which puts a lot of pressure on organizations that are essentially created to make money and CEOs that have a very specific job to get their company to make money to be incredibly trusted. So how do you balance the business intent to drive and accelerate your business with this trust expectation from the community and people to give back and to be socially responsible? Yeah. I mean, again, I don't think I accept the premise that they are not working together. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I actually think that if you are giving back correctly and honestly, and for the right reasons, you will make a ton more money. So my story and my argument to every CEO is if you show the average Australian or New Zealand customer that you care, then they will buy your product. It is that simple. And if you don't think that, then you have two things. One, very little faith in people and you think they're really stupid. And people are a lot smarter than companies give them credit for because they figure it out really quickly. And this is the thing, right? If you do the right thing, you will get sales. I cannot be more fundamentally strong on that point. Amazing advice, Rose. And uh, touching on two of the things that you mentioned around showing that you care and taking action. Queen, I'd love to hand over to you and get your perspective on how sustainability plays a role in all of this, because it's sort of been the cornerstone of the buying local movement for a really long time and sort of a pivotal part of that entire puzzle. So how are big lofty sustainability goals being activated at the local levels? And how does that fit into all of these equations of business intent and business responsibility? Maybe somewhere deep in our minds and our consciousness, sustainability and localism are interlinked. That's why people go to farmers markets. On a personal level, I'm all for it. I love localism. I love you know community, mutual support, mutual aid, all these ideas that are coming up around that. That being said, I don't think that the most sustainable option necessarily has to be the local option. And I think that right now um, we're seeing big organizations that are more enabled to be more sustainable than local options in some ways, and also to start to play in local options in, in a lot better ways. So things like mass customization, where you can sort of have distributed supply chains, distributed production networks even that can play to local strengths. I mean, we're seeing a lot of organizations now that are moving into saying like, 
okay, whereas before there was, you know, because of efficiencies of scale and, and just consistency and making things easy to move around in our supply chains and our logistics network, it was easier for us to make everything the same. And so that's what we did. But we're not necessarily going to have to do that forever. We can start to do extreme customization so that big organizations can play to the desires and the wants and the needs of local communities, and they can do it without losing the gains that they made from making everything the same and at the larger scale. Quinn, that's exactly what I work on with cool. uh, personalization, uh, one-to-one knowing our customers through the through the app and being able to serve up relevant offers to them. Mm-hmm. And it's all powered by technology, which is crazy to, to think about. On that point, we've mentioned to, you know, what Alan, you said before around collaboration and how important that is. So you can have those globally impactful changes. And then maybe it's through local collaboration that you get a lot of the traction that you need to. One example of that that I've seen recently is, you know, a company like Jibe in the States, which is the eco-friendly app that users are, you know, directed through it to eco-friendly restaurants. So those ones that are prioritizing reusable materials, for example, over the styrofoam packaging. So sometimes it's a partnership opportunity, right? Absolutely. We've had some fascinating conversations on how do we better address food waste? And we're recognizing food waste isn't just a point on a line. It's a spectrum like so many other things. How do we proactively deal with that? How do we think about food waste differently um, so that it's not just before it spoils or just after, even worse? It'll take collaboration to put the kinds of AI systems and supply chain management systems in place for companies really to do that in a powerful way. So the point particularly that you mentioned, Quinn, around farmers markets and this perception that a lot of people have that buying sustainably and locally is a privilege in a lot of ways. So sort of goes hand in hand, I think, in a lot of people's minds with the urban shopper who frequents the high-end grocer, buys organic, green, premium. Is this changing? Is this becoming more mainstream? That's a good question. And I'm a little hesitant. I would love it if it were. I would love it if it were becoming you know, more mainstream and more affordable and more accessible. But what is interesting is sort of, and again, I know I'm sort of always coming back to this, but some of the digital platforms and digital transformations that are enabling more of that um, and that are working on things like food access and you know, affordable nutrition and some of these new organizations and platforms and enablers that allow some of the inefficiencies in the system to <laughs> to not exist. But being open to learning a lot more about how to deal with that is going to become increasingly important. And learning about how we can support our local communities also, I imagine, because you know one of the data points that I love is from Ipsos, where they reported that around the world, a third of people agree that their local community has become more supportive. So I'm guessing that means more supportive to me and I'm more supportive to them. So it feels like we're all in it together and hopefully that intent definitely carries through. Alan, I'd love to hear, is there anything that you're seeing that's really changing in that space around, you know, tackling the food waste issue, particularly at that local level? Because I know that the food waste sort of as an issue goes hand in hand with food scarcity and the extreme hunger that we're facing around the world, but also in America. Is that space changing from what you've seen? Hugely. There are so many initiatives going on to address food waste from methane digesters to, again, some of the proactive planning to just really goes across the board. And I'll say our work with our local food banks has taught us a lot about where they're involved, which is in a very big way. 
And yet there's so much more happening as well. They're actually addressing food waste all the way back to the farm and all the way back to what's happening inside the plant. I'd say we're just scratching the surface of the ways in which we'll be thinking about food waste going forward. And it's a huge effort that we'll all need to be making going forward to really just address that issue, which in terms of the food industry, it's one of the biggest in terms of impacts on sustainability. And it's, I think, uh, for organizations, a part of a bigger um, sort of supply chain challenge in a lot of ways. And I mean, I think every, like you said, every food industry sort of experiences that challenge. I would love what Quinn was saying about we've linked local to sustainable, but not always, right? You know, um, the delicious chocolate that, that that Mars markets, like that's, it's simply not a local product here in the United States. So many things need to happen locally, but not all of them. In Australia, we have the privilege of having made our chocolate products locally for the last, you know, 40 odd years. And certainly from research that we've seen, the desire for people to source products locally is there. Kantar research um, that I was looking at today shows that it's the most desired actually in the Asian markets. It's relatively high for emerging and developing markets. It's high for some European markets like France and Italy, lower for other markets like the UK and Germany. And quite low for the US at 54% of people agree. Lauren, I'd love to hear how important balancing all of that is for a company when you're prioritizing how you bring in that local flavor, flair and nuance with all of the other things that you're trying to balance around, you know, getting people a great product. Speaking to Alan's point on food waste and how that is a problem that we need to solve, given the explosion of population growth we're going to have and just the difficulty with feeding all of the humans on this planet. 40% of food is wasted in the United States, and that's kind of a horrendous figure, (laughs) quite literally. So... My husband and I, throughout the pandemic, we started saving our veggie scraps and making veggie stock from them, which has totally amplified our cooking. I highly recommend it as a tactic. We signed up for a composting service here locally in Chicago, a local company locally doing compost. So I think one of the things that we tend to maybe underestimate in these really big, complex issues that we're dealing with as a species is that individual action and individuals really do have the agency and the power to create change in their local communities. And that's the easiest place to start is exactly where you live. Companies are able to very much set the example and set the standard. And to Rose's earlier point, those companies that do good for the world end up making more money in the long run. So it's about having that longer term view and to bring it all the way back to the start of the conversation conversation when I said, you know, we're social animals and we got to this place as a species on this planet by helping each other. And that's really the crux of humanity is that we want to help and support each other. And so individual action can have a global impact without a doubt. I'd love to shift gears for a second and talk about some of the downsides of this um, or potential watchouts. One, Quinn, that I would love to get your take on is that, you know, when it comes to understanding people and their motivations, we are moving towards automation of data and globalizing our insights around um, human beings. Does the local consumer get lost in that? How do we make sure that they don't? What you're asking there is like, what is the pathway to keeping the local consumer, the local community member in mind throughout all of that? The rule that you need to follow there is to design systems and platforms and tools and companies with humans in mind. Even the choice of words, like consumer is not a very human-oriented word. 
Um, and that's why sometimes at IFTF we go with Eater instead because it's a little, it's it's a small difference, but it's a little bit more humanizing in some ways. And maybe there's even a better term, but it's like a million different use cases. And it is very easy to automate things and it is easy to look to data for all your answers. And, and it's hard to think about that. And I love that you made that connection as well, though, between you know the language that we use and how we refer to the people who are ultimately our bosses, right? These people that buy our products and love our brands in a lot of cases and, you know, the community that we actually can make an impact on. I think that you're absolutely right. You know, when it comes to the future, nothing is written and we can help prepare people, but we also can help influence what kind of future we want to have created for ourselves and for our organization. With that in mind, I would love to get your takes on the consumer behaviors that we should anticipate around this topic in this next decade and into the future. And specifically, this focus on localism and supporting local communities past the pandemic. Here's the stat that blew my mind, and I think it's going to change a lot of things. Germany, Italy, France, the UK, and Australia had the highest registrations ever in small business startups last year. Consumers want to get in on the act, right? They love local, they want to make, they want to be artisans, they want to get their hands dirty, they want to try some stuff. Now, necessity is the mother of all invention. When your job's on the line and you don't want to be a paycheck employee, you start to look at your side hustle and you try to make that the main gig. Consumers are recognizing that the way to help the local communities flourish is to become a member of the local production community. What we're talking about is the person who makes honey. They want to sell it at the local markets. The lady who is fantastic at making cupcakes, she wants a little cupcakes business. What we're seeing is this incredible push to create and be a part of that consumer local community. Now, we've never seen the intersection of people wanting to buy local and wanting to become local. I think five years from now, what we're going to see in terms of local is holding local to the same standards as big behemoth global companies. You can't hide behind, oh, I'm cute, I'm local, I'm amazing, unless you two give something back. And what I'm loving is that we're holding to the same standard, the tiny five-man band company with the company that actually employs 200,000 people globally. I expect and actually hope to see additional transparency. We've only begun to see just how much eaters will demand from food companies about what's in their product and where it came from. I think we'll see it come and it's where it isn't now in the middle of the supply chain. Consumer facing brands, they have quite a bit of exposure and transparency already, but those who are manufacturing their products or deliver their ingredients, they've been largely sort of out of the limelight, but that's changing. If we care about where the food came from on the farm, it'll mean greater transparency and greater accountability for companies to do the right thing in sustainability, business practices, leadership, ethics, the treatment of workers and farmers, and giving back to the community. So drawing from Rose's comments earlier, you have to do the right thing. That transparency coming in is the thing that's going to help us all to make better decisions on how we spend our dollars in a way that's going to be consistent with our own ethics, our own politics, our own beliefs. One thing that we haven't really touched on this conversation is the role of climate change. One of the sort of luminaries of future thinking is William Gibson, who's a sci-fi writer, but he recently said, all imagined futures that are lacking in recognition of anthropogenic climate change will increasingly seem absurdly short-sighted. And I think that's pretty accurate. And it's something that I just like to bring into every conversation now because it's on this huge scale. It's easy to sort of feel helpless in the face of it, 
it's increasing in its effect and it's going to just change everything more and more. But I do think that we're going to see a lot of change and evolution in communities in the broadest sense. I think we'll see more consumers more enabled to understand and act on sustainability decisions. They'll have more information. They'll have more tools that help them understand that information, but they'll have proportionally more noise. You have to do good on a real level. And increasingly, that's going to be so ridiculously important because it'll be so ridiculously easy for people to verify whether and why you're doing those sort of things. I'm really hot on this idea of voting with your dollars. I think, you know, we've talked about it this whole time and circled around it as far as where you choose to spend your money and how you choose to spend your money really has far reaching effects. $10 spent in your local business, eight of that stays in your community. So the, shall we just say humans, (laughs) choosing how to spend their funds and recognizing the impact that they have every time they open up their wallet, I think is a really important idea, especially as we look to companies who are doing the right thing and trying to build a better collective future for all of us. It was Ray Kroc himself who said, you are in business for yourself, but not by yourself. As you heard today from our brilliant and insightful panel, the focus on local and to do good is here to stay. As individuals and as business leaders, we have a vested interest in asking why. What can we expect from the future? Well, we can see that our future is smaller, decentralized, hyperlocal, suburbanized, with a greater expectation from consumers for transparency, for trust, and for a smaller environmental footprint. We will see greater empowerment offered to our domestic economies and added kindness to our communities. If we keep asking why, we will better understand the human motivation creating this future and therefore what role we can play in it. So, keep asking why. This is Joe. Stay curious. Stay curious.